you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking at several different passages this morning as we consider again the subject of baptism. We look forward to next week returning to our regular series, our regular habit of working through a book of the Bible sequentially. Um, We're returning to Philippians in that study after now a couple of months as we focused on Christmas and then these habits of grace. As we look at the topic of baptism from time to time, as we have baptisms, uh, I'll often focus on a different aspect. And this morning I want to focus first on what the sign signifies, but then how we apply it, how we try to practice that carefully and faithfully here among our own children. Um, that's often a question, and I want to I address that just briefly this morning before we see two of our own young people uh, be baptized. What pictures come into your mind when you think of baptism? God's given us these signs to represent, to picture, to demonstrate, to give us tangible, physical signs of his grace. Just think of his kindness in this. Because he wants us to be so clear about his grace to us, he's given us not just his words, but living pictures to see and feel and recognize what he's done for us. Of all the pictures that we could think of, there's several analogies that can be made. Consider what we read in Matthew 28, 19. Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, after Peter had preached Christ to that gathered crowd, many had come to him. They asked him, what should we do? Peter replies, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So first, what does baptism signifies? One of the truths baptism portrays for us is entrance into a family. It's entrance into the family of God. Notice that from the text that we just read, that we are baptized in or into the name of the triune God. So we can conclude rightly that baptism is to be seen as a naming ceremony. Now, not long ago, I was given the great privilege of witnessing the legal proceedings of an adoption. It was a special and wonderful event, a once-in-a-lifetime event for this family, perhaps, and I could not help but think of the spiritual truths of our own adoption into the family of God. And just think of it. On that day, the judge signed that this little one was now legally a member of her new family. Her whole status was now changed legally and officially. It did not mean that only then would her parents start loving her and treating her as part of the family. It meant that her standing in the family was now officially and publicly recognized, identified, and could be leaned upon as binding. So likewise, baptism demonstrates that we now publicly bear the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's our public declaration in act, in testimony, of an internal reality. It is God's declaration of affirmation that he has saved us. I want us to keep asking as we look at baptism again and again because I think often this is missed. Why did God give us this sign? 
Is it so he could have some information from us that he doesn't already know? Or so that he could proclaim something to affirm to us, again, his gospel grace? Like that adoption, our relationship with God does not begin at baptism, but baptism is when it is made public. We're adopted by God the Father, and in these waters, that is declared publicly. Now, when we declare our allegiance to God and determine to follow him, we may rightly then picture him smiling and saying, what I want you to know by this sign is that I have made a commitment to you. Every time you fall, I will pick you up. Every time you sin, I will remain as ever faithful to my covenant as before. I will not ever give up on you or let you be snatched away. So church family, I want you to see as you're watching what's happening to somebody else, as you're hearing the testimony, that this is what God is proclaiming in this gospel sign to you again. He is holding you. Our gracious God is speaking words of assurance and commitment to us through this sign, even as we pledge our commitment to follow our king. But to take on this family name is no small commitment it's a commitment to obey him completely we're acknowledging that he is our master we're identified with him wholly in luke 6 46 jesus said again why do you call me lord lord and not do what i tell you he's saying that's a contradiction don't say lord and then not recognize you have to follow is this how we are living Is there an area that comes to your mind where you would say, Lord, Lord, but you're not obeying? As we observe these baptisms this morning, we participate by reminding ourselves of our commitments to Christ, our King. Where must we turn again in repentance this morning and recommit to what we declared when we entered these waters? Baptism demonstrates we have a new family name and a new master. Second question, who is to be baptized? Without exception, the New Testament pattern for baptism is that it follows a credible, that's a word we want to highlight moving forward, a credible profession of faith. Baptism is for believers. Let's look at several scriptures. Acts 2.41, so those who received, there's an act of faith received his word, were baptized. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, then they were baptized. Acts 16, 14 and following, the Lord opened her heart, Lydia, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's the truth of the gospel. And after she was baptized. Acts 18. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now, here's where where we come to our application as a church family. At what age should children be baptized? Every Christian parent longs for his children to trust in Christ and to make that trust public. In churches like ours, that profession is made public through our baptism. Now, one of the ongoing discussions among believers with a shared commitment to believers' baptism relates to the age at which children can or should be baptized. This this is a challenging topic. 
We'll talk about why in a moment. But as we begin to address this question, I want to, before we even get into the discussion, I want you to hear very clearly from the outset, this is an issue where scripture is not explicit regarding the timing of baptism. And therefore, faithful, godly believers come to differing practices. And that's okay. We can come to differing conclusions even within a church family. What we're going to talk about is how do we work at this together to most honor the scriptures that we see, to practice them to the best of our ability for the glory of God. What I want to explain in the next few minutes is the loving desire. And I hope you hear it as that, the loving desire of our elders to lead our church family wisely and with careful intention. With you, we long to see our children saved and strengthened in their faith. Our united goal should be to prepare them to pursue him when they move out into the world as independent adults. We have a goal in mind. It's to make disciples, as we saw in Matthew 28. Even as our children move out into the world, We want to do everything possible to encourage them toward that goal. And practicing baptism carefully and intentionally has served us well to that end over the last several years. What you're going to hear this morning is two of our own young people that were raised up in our church that have wrestled with this issue over time. Am I personally, individually, autonomously, apart from what my parents believe or my church believes, am I going to follow Christ. Both of them are a great demonstration of this kind of careful preparation. Now, remember the New Testament pattern we just said for baptism is that it follows a credible profession of faith. What makes a profession of faith credible? Well, we can look for credibility to be displayed in knowledge And secondly, in maturity. Knowledge. For a person's profession of faith to be credible, he must display at least a basic knowledge of the gospel and the meaning of baptism. That that can be grasped at an early age. We are in no way in this discussion saying young people, even very young people, can't come to faith in Christ. That is not what we're saying. Please do not hear that or conclude that this morning. Baptism, though, is not a rite performed upon a person, but it's an ordinance in which he is a full participant. We want to examine carefully. We meet with the candidate as pastors, as elders, and we talk and we hear what God is doing. Can you articulate your faith? Is this truly a believer, we're asking? But then maturity. Maturity displays itself in autonomy and in counting the cost A maturing believer is autonomous in that he has the ability to make independent decisions. He's also one who counts the cost, who's seen some of what a decision like this may cost him in terms of relationship, prestige, or suffering. And yet he still desires to proceed. Now often people people will look at the book of Acts and ask, but don't we see immediate baptisms as an example in the book of Acts? So why would we then delay anyone's baptism? Well, this is a very good question and the proper instinct to look at scripture and help it, let it help determine our practice. So let me give you a brief response that carefully considers the purpose of that book of our Bible. First, you'll notice that there are no 
clear examples in scripture. You do have some that says there were household baptisms, but we don't even know exactly what that means. That could have been servants that are considered adults. It could have been a number of different people. We're not sure exactly who that means, but there are no clear examples of children being baptized in the book of Acts or even in the entire New Testament. But we need to be fair and honest. There are no examples as well of a child being delayed for baptism. So without clear commands then, again, we are striving to be wise in our practice and charitable then in our differences. The leaders of the church and the church body are to work together in concert, in unity, to be faithful in practice as faithful as they know to be. And to interact with grace and charity where there may be differences in opinion. Second, we need to recognize that the book of Acts is not intending to provide for us a manual of church order or practice. So we want to be careful of saying, well, I see this as an example in Acts. Therefore, every church should do this. Let me explain. There are far more conversions recorded than baptism in the book of Acts. So does that mean, would it be right to conclude that baptism isn't important or sometimes isn't necessary? Can we disobey Matthew 28, 19, and 20? I don't think so. To the same point, as I was studying on eldership, I noticed in chapters 13 and 14, Paul's entire first journey is recorded there in those two chapters. Though many people are saved, there's no record of a single baptism. Does that mean, again, that Acts is communicating that baptism is unimportant? Not at all. Not at all. Baptism is simply not the focus of the book, of the letter. Acts is not intended to answer every question about our practices. Lastly, every time you do see someone saved and then baptized in the book, it is always accompanied by either a miraculous sign, and that's part of what the book is doing. Saying, look at how the gospel is expanding outside of the Jews. So, baptism is either accompanied by a miraculous sign or persecution. Remember, great persecution hits the churches. It hits the church in Jerusalem and then everywhere else where the gospel's expanding. The one that maybe comes to our mind the most is Acts 8. It describes the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch being baptized immediately after conversion. This is a wonderful description in our Bibles. But remember, think of the context. An angel has miraculously appeared to Philip after this great revival, this breakout of salvations in Samaria. And he says, you go down here to now one guy. Go down the road south to Gaza and you're going to meet this man. As soon as this man professes faith and they come up out of the water after baptism, Philip is again miraculously whisked away in a way that we can't even begin to understand. It doesn't happen like that now. And the point of that account is that the message of Jesus Christ is advancing. We see that repeated over and over in Acts. The word went forward. The word succeeded. So the message of Jesus Christ in Acts is spreading by the work of the Spirit in unexpected and amazing and miraculous ways. Even here to a Gentile Ethiopian government official. And just think of it, this new believer is willing to confirm his commitment to Christ right away, even though it would have likely cost him greatly. 
Finally, the Philippian jailer is saved and immediately baptized. But again, imagine the risk that he is taking as a Roman soldier. By making his commitment to Christ public, there's persecution present. There's pressure present immediately in that man's life. So Acts is demonstrating that God is able to save even the most unlikely of people. Now another point to consider to help us think through this is how believers in other contexts view and practice baptism. In one of the frontline videos, we've heard of our own missionary, Johnson George. He's in India. He explains the risks and danger of publicly baptizing believers in his country. It's against the law. I've heard of similar pressures recently in the church in Romania. This is clear throughout the world. It's not the same as here in the West when we have much more freedom. And when a public profession of Christ comes with inherent risk of ridicule and jail time or persecution, the credibility of the testimony then is readily and more immediately affirmed. Without this kind of pressure, we would then wisely move forward with greater caution as we seek for mature and credible professions. While we want to be wise and careful in our practice of baptizing our children, I also want to be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those who were baptized at a younger age, many of us were. I was baptized at five. We're not saying that we couldn't have been saved then or properly participated in baptism. What we're saying is as we move forward, how do we do this well and serve our church family to the best of our ability? The overwhelming majority of the testimonies that we hear of incoming members that grew up in a Christian home is that they, like me, made a profession at a young age and then struggled, like I did, for much of their teen years with assurance and the presence of sin. I think it's much wiser to wait till that has been worked out carefully. I greatly appreciate one of the members as we interviewed her articulating this as she described her struggle as working to understand if her faith was her own or her parents. She admitted that I grew up and I was a very compliant child. So this made this discussion in my mind a lot more challenging. Was I obeying because it's just what everybody expected or because I really loved and wanted to follow Christ? And the phrase she said has stuck in my mind. She said she wanted to own her own faith before she was baptized. That's our goal. So in our Christian homes, as we disciple our children, our goal should be to help them to own their own faith. We especially need God's grace for this because very often our children want to please us. My kids' favorite songs as children were the songs they were learning in church or that we listened to in the car as a family. We loved hearing them sing those songs. That's a good thing to teach them those things. We would take videos of them singing at two and three years old, but that didn't mean that they yet embraced the truths of those songs. We watched one of those videos recently, and, and the child we videoed said, I don't remember that at all. You know, they loved watching the video, but that... It wasn't that they had embraced the truth for themselves. We're hopeful and prayerful, but we also want to be careful to continue to look for fruit of a personal commitment to Christ. Also, when considering the wisdom of our practice, it's wise to think about what others with similar biblical convictions have done throughout church history. What have other Christians concluded? John Gill, a Baptist systematic theologian, was baptized at 19. 
Richard Furman, we know that name. He was a Baptist minister raised in a non-Christian home, was saved and baptized at age 17. John Broadus was raised in a strong Christian home and baptized at 16. Charles Spurgeon allowed younger teens to be baptized in his church, but waited until his own sons were 18 before they were baptized. And Jonathan Edwards concluded it was wisest to delay baptism until age 14. Well, how about faithful, wise pastors of our own day? Here's what Grace Community Church, pastored by John MacArthur, has concluded. And I want you to listen especially to their reasoning. I think this is really helpful in what we're striving for. Here at Grace Community Church, our general practice is to wait until a professing child has reached the age of 12. Because baptism is seen as something clear and final, Our primary concern is that when a younger child is baptized, he tends to look to that experience as proof that he was saved. Well, that's supposed to happen. That's not wrong. But they conclude, therefore, in the case of an unregenerate child who is baptized, which is not uncommon in the church at large, baptism then actually does him a disservice. It could help harden him against the truth. It is better to wait until the reality to which baptism testifies can be more easily discerned. So this should be a conversation that we're having with our children right away. If if they're beyond that age, we would ask you and encourage you and urge you to have this kind of conversation. Are you following Christ? What sign has God given us to demonstrate that commitment? Just like the adoption proceeding, this is intended to be a very special once-in-a-lifetime event. We want this to be beautifully clear for the baptism candidate, for those shepherding her through that process, and for the church family. Here's what the elders of Capitol Hill Baptist, pastored by Mark Dever, have concluded. While it's difficult to set a certain number of years which are required for baptism, it is appropriate to consider the candidate's maturity. The kind of maturity that we feel it is wise to expect is the maturity which would allow that son or daughter to deal directly with the church as a whole and not fundamentally to still be under their parents' authority. As they assume adult responsibilities, sometime in late high school, with driving, employment, non-Christian friends, voting, legality of marriage, then part of this, we would think, would be to declare publicly their allegiance to Christ by baptism. Finally, Bethlehem Baptist Church established their practice while John Piper was their pastor. A portion of their statement on the subject reads, it is our practice to wait until there is evidence of regeneration and enough maturity to articulate the gospel and give a credible profession of faith. Now again, we want to be very careful. These examples are not authoritative. I'm sure you could find examples of others who baptize children with no delay. But the point of these examples that I'm sharing with you is that we can be encouraged in our practice to be careful, to be wise by considering what other faithful ministries have concluded. So why do we want to be careful, intentional, and even at times graciously delay baptism for our children? Why would we ever do that? The answer I would give you, and I want you to hear clearly, is because we love our church family. Because we love these God-given signs of the gospel, we are responsible to administer them carefully and well. And because we want these signs to be as meaningful as scripture demonstrates them to be. 
Our desire is that your young people, as they grow in their faith and own it, this would be such an encouragement and blessing to them. We don't want to potentially encourage confusion or a false confession in our children. We want them to own their own faith. Just consider what's at stake. How we as church leadership and a church family are to consider this issue with wisdom. Again, in our context, without the presence of persecution, which is the greater danger? False assurance of faith or the delay of a sign that does not save? We're always glad for the opportunity to talk with any of the children and parents in our church. So please don't hear us saying, let's not talk about this. No, come, let's talk about this. We want to encourage you and disciple one another in the gospel and rejoice in that. So come as we carefully consider this important issue. How would we encourage you to proceed? What if your child comes to you and they tell you they've trusted in Christ and want to be baptized? Here's how one brother encouraged parents to answer. He says, I, to say, I'm thrilled that you're repenting and trusting in Christ. More than anything, your mom and I want to know that God has changed your life. The way that we will know is if you continue repenting and trusting. If you act like a true Christian, even when others tell you that belief is strange, unnecessary, or even foolish. Sometimes we don't know that until we're in a place that really costs us to be a Christian. Maybe you won't know that until you face a choice between your friends and Jesus. Let's see what God does. Let's watch and pray about it. And as questions come up, let's certainly keep talking about it. So I would encourage you as parents to understand this ordinance better. I've grown so much in my appreciation of the beauty of this picture as I've studied it as a parent and as a pastor. I was encouraged recently by one parent who came and asked for resources to study one of the ordinances as a family to better understand how to explain it to their child. So please, please don't think that your child if your child isn't quite ready for either ordinance, that somehow they are being robbed of a blessing or the protection of the sovereign hand of God. Don't conclude that. To believe that would be to misunderstand the nature of these signs. Again, they don't save or confer some kind of supernatural power or protection. They remind us of God's grace. They point us to him. And they can do that even as we observe them. So keep talking. Keep discipling about these matters with your children. Come and talk to the elders or even some of the young people and their parents who've been baptized recently. I've been so encouraged by many of the older young people that we have baptized and how they have slowly and carefully considered the cost of following Christ and made that decision. Talk to those in your church family. I also have two books here that I want to recommend that are excellent to help you in this discussion with your children. These are uh, resources that we've used regularly. They're from Truth 78. The first one is Helping Children to Understand the Gospel. This would be excellent in a time of family devotions or around the table as your young people are getting older. And the second one we use as we help parents disciple their children, when we have somebody come to us, we give them this book. It's called Established in the Faith, and it goes through a process of thinking about discipleship and what baptism means for followers of Christ. 
So this morning, our conclusion as we think about this sign, rejoice in the glorious sign of God's miraculous grace in our lives and worship him. That's, that's what this sign says. This is the gospel. God does amazing things to transform sinners into sons and daughters. So let's encourage each other to see the beauty of God's grace in these living, tangible pictures. Let's keep growing in our understanding and desire to practice these ordinances with greater thoughtfulness and care. Let's respond with the joy they should produce in us as we proclaim his death until he comes. Tim Chester writes, in baptism, Christ is promising to take us as his own, to keep us, to love us. God is speaking in these waters. And we respond, we commit ourselves to him, both as our Savior and as our Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we rejoice in the work that you do. We are so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for your kindness in even giving us these signs. They are for us to feed and strengthen and grow our faith. So may we pursue them with care, with diligence, with wisdom. Help us to know how to apply them well in individual cases. Help us to shepherd our children carefully and wisely and intentionally. Lord, we love our children and want them to know the gospel, but we must recognize that you love them far more. So may we trust you in these signs. May we rejoice in the beauty that they offer to us. And may we give great thanks for the testimonies that we're about to hear of how you change lives. In Jesus' name, amen.